A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by Teach Coalition with the New York City Election Day around the corner. It's time to drop the excuses and vote when it comes to funding for our schools and communities. Elected officials pay attention to the people who vote. It's simple. If you're not voting, you don't have a voice. And of course, we all want a voice. And we're looking for that voice. So go ahead out there and vote. The primary election in New York City is is basically the general election. So make sure you vote early uh, or on election day itself, June 22nd, coming right up. If you have questions or need help with your voter plan, then you can call or email the Orthodox Union's Teach New York City at 646-459-5162. That's 646-459-5162. Or email frandm at teachcoalition.org. That's again, frandm at teachcoalition.org. And I'll post, of course, the links and the phone number in the uh, description, in the text of the um, of the summary. When you vote elected, officials take note. And what I took note of was that um, it's June 22nd, the day of this election, is the 80th anniversary of Operation Barbarossa, when, um, when the Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, which is the main, the main theater of World War II, anywhere, the most vicious, the most uh, battles and... and battle deaths, uh, was in the East. As far as Hitler was concerned, his his war was in the East against Soviet Russia and was the most horrible um, war theater with the worst battles, the highest death tolls in military history. Of course, that uh, led into the Holocaust as well, Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the East. So we talk about two totalitarian regimes going at it and look at the destruction that comes out of it. So here we have the opposite. We have the the uh, the non-totalitarian, the d- democratic vote, the opportunity for, for Jews to have their voice heard in a democratic election. And what better day to have it as the most opposite of the destructiveness of totalitarianism. We can have the building and the building of Torah and Jewish institutions through that, of uh, uh, through through uh, voting on such a day, and it's so much more productive in that way. So go ahead and, and vote. 
And Jews' role in voting in politics in New York City brings to mind Jews' role in politics in Israel, since those are the two major Jewish population centers. So it's appropriate to discuss a bit about David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of the state of Israel, and his role in the Jewish character of the nascent uh, state of Israel. What I uh, wanted to speak about is really, um, there's so much to speak about David Ben-Gurion and the early days of the Yishuv and then of the state of Israel. It was a fascinating person and an interesting biography. But um, what I wanted to focus on was his his role in, um, in, in, in his views and his role and certain anecdotes from his life that are regards to the Jewish character of the state of Israel and, uh, and how that develops. He's considered the founding father of the state of Israel with many great accomplishments, in many ways the George Washington of the state of Israel. He was the head of the Jewish agency, he was later the head of the World Zionist Organization, later the first prime minister. He formed the IDF, he, he, he uh, you know, uh, partially wrote and, and, and presided over the ceremony of the Declaration of Independence. He built the economy and formulated foreign policy, famous with the reparations agreement with West Germany, Conrad Adrenauer. He absorbed Jewish immigrants from many different countries in the early years. He was known for his military leadership, getting Israel nuclear weapons, the capture of Adolf Eichmann, etc., etc., etc. He was in power with short breaks until 1963, and then died a decade later. Uh, so just some of his, uh, both his accomplishments, as well as many of the controversies. Many of those things I listed were very controversial, and there was a lot of opposition. Uh, he was involved with along the way. He was, uh, you know, he was in many ways beloved by many. In other ways, many ways, he made many enemies along the way also. So it was a complicated figure. On the other hand, you know, there were those who had a negative view of him, um, despite his accomplishments in leadership. <coughs> Excuse me whether it's a result of the disastrous issues with the absorptions, uh, absorption of the new immigrants in the Ma'barot, the, those uh, temporary uh, living arrangements, which were disastrous, both economically and socially, and, and the way they were treated, um, that remained a, a bit of a stain on his legacy. He had the conver- controversial legacy of the reparations agreement, which was a, a, opposed at the time, the socialist economy, or... <clears throat> which is more related to today's topic, is secularism. And the secularism of the Mapai, the party which he founded and led, and uh, somewhat his anti-religious bent and uh, the government that he led uh, expressed. So we'd like to explore him as a leader in the historical context and his position on the Jewish character of the state of Israel, as well as his relationship with the religious community there, and then see what we can come up with. I'll start off with a, a story um, once when I was in uh, Yad Vashem, it was a group of, uh, of, um, of guides. We had a, a lecture, and the lecture was about the Eichmann trial. And uh, apparently Adolf Eichmann appealed after, he appealed to the verdict of the, of the court, uh, death sentence, and he appealed it to the Supreme Court, and, and uh, <coughs> the sentencing was upheld, the guilty verdict was upheld, so he appealed for a presidential pardon to the second president of the state of Israel, Yitzhak ben Svi, And you know, he could have given him a pardon. So Yitzhak ben Svi, though he was not required to, he, it was up to him, it was his own prerogative, he submitted the request to Ben-Gurion, who was the prime minister, who did not have the authority to pardon, who in turn called a cabinet meeting. A whole story, a gansamay, so we say. And whenever we get around to the Eichmann story, we'll talk about that. It's a fascinating story, that cabinet meeting and what was decided and how it was submitted back to Ben Svi. 
um, and and of course uh, Eichmann was uh, executed. Uh, so so, but uh, this this is being discussed by the lecturer, and then someone raised their hand with a question in the class that I was in, and they said, if it was such a weighty moral and ethical question, why didn't Ben Gurion consult with the chief rabbis of Israel about the issue? And the lecturer was was simply speechless. And finally, when he regained his composure, he said that such an idea would be so foreign to Ben-Gurion and to who he was that anyone who knows anything about him or his personality and style would dismiss such an idea as simply inconceivable. It's just so far removed from who Ben-Gurion was. And that brings us into the topic uh, a little bit about his relationship with the religious community and his views on the Jewish character of the state of Israel. Uh, briefly, um, he was born in Plonsk, in Poland, in a traditional home, but not really religious. He went to a cheder, uh, but it was also a cheder mesukan, a, a more modern cheder. And at 13, he ceased Jewish studies uh, altogether as a result of the economic situation at home, which was quite common at the time. Um, and uh, he was arrested by Tsarist police during the 1905 revolution. He was already involved in Zionism. He also spent time, some time in Warsaw. He later on moved to Palestine at the peak of the Second Aliyah in 1906. Um, he moved briefly to Ottoman Turkey uh, to try to obtain a law degree because you know Israel, uh, Palestine was under Ottoman Turkish control at the time. And he uh, he wanted to, he learned Turkish. He tried learning Arabic. It didn't work that work out well. Uh, but he did learn Turkish. He also spoke English and French and, of course, Yiddish. Um, uh, definitely a, a smart person. And he has a rise to leadership in the Yishev. He was a big Hebraist. He, he loved the Hebrew language and insisted on, on a lot of things about Hebrew and the meetings should be in Hebrew and this should be in Hebrew and that should be in Hebrew and they should Hebraicize their names. And Either way, Hebrew was a big uh, component of his philosophy, trying to get to... You know, just a brief overview till we get to uh, more of, of, of what I want to discuss. He lived in Petach Tikva for a while in the early days, early Zionist activity. In 1911, he, like I said, he left Israel to go to, to, to Turkey. So he was, in, he actually moved to Saloniki for about a year. And then later Constantinople, which is today Istanbul, to study law, as did Yitzhak Ben Svi at the same time, by the way. And he called Saloniki a Jewish city that has no equal in the world. He was very impressed with Saloniki, the Sephardic Jewish community there, and its uh, social structure and, and economic structure. Uh, during World War I, he lived in New York. He had a lot of exposure to different Jewish communities around the world. He lived in New York for the duration of World War I, for about five years, four or five years. He returned to Palestine, and slowly, slowly he becomes the leader of the Yishuv, of the Jewish community in, in Palestine at the time. And later on, he founds the Mapai in the 1930s, 1920s, 30s, together with Beryl Katznelson, and this becomes the main uh, mainstream Zionism in the Yishuv, labor Zionism. In 1946, interesting you know, side anecdote, not really related, he was in Paris, and he stayed in the same hotel as Ho Chi Minh of Vietnam. And the two became very friendly. Um, and, uh, at the, you know, he, and he, they, they maintained, uh, you know, some sort of relationship, uh, interestingly enough. Um, the, by the way, again, totally on a tangent, another Vietnam-Israel connection was, was uh, Moshe Dayan was a military observer in Vietnam with the Americans 
in the 1960s, and and he he um, he took some lessons from the, from the quagmire of Vietnam that he wanted to implement in Israel to 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 not so that should not happen. In other words, he was not impressed with some of what he saw, and he tried to ensure that that then the Israeli army would be a much more of a decisive action and uh, and less of of what the quagmire of Vietnam was happening. Either way, that's just a, another Vietnam Israel side point. So Ho Chi Minh has this relationship with uh, Ben Gurion. At that time, it was that visit that Ben Gurion visited the DP camps, uh, Holocaust survivors, and tried to reassure the desperate survivors that. But but he had to admit that the British were not allowing uh, immigration into Palestine. He was a big doer in general, less of a talker. He was a man of action, um, an initiative, which is why he succeeded as a leader, despite in many ways he was somewhat charismatic, but he you know, definitely lacked in charisma, and he also lacked in good looks. Uh, but he was a doer, and, a, and that man of action propelled him into the leadership. He once said, actually, that he prefers Lenin over Trotsky, because Lenin was a more of a man of action, more of decisive action. And he attributed the maneuvering and playing around and getting, getting things done that way, with, which, which, he, which he attributed to Trotsky. But he, he said that was the diaspora Jew mentality, which he so despised. Uh, the new Jew, which Ben-Gurion and others were trying to create in Palestine with their Hebraicized names, was to be more decisive. He often contrasted the Jew of the exile and the new Jew of Palestine and later of Israel. This was a central component to his thinking and influenced his views of the religious community and his relationship with that community, whom he associated often with the Jew of the diaspora. So often it wasn't about religion per se, but rather a certain set of mannerisms, culture, and mentality, which was associated with the diaspora, which he despised and, and felt was a big mistake. And now we're, 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 we're fixing that. For instance, he didn't like the Polish-Jewish merchant style of business, of wheeling and dealing, and, uh, and which was, you know, an economic form, and, and, and he, he was attracted more to socialism and the working the land, etc. So, again, it wasn't about so much religion per se. It was also, I'm going to get to that, but it was also about this uh, the, the diaspora mentality, which he uh, did not like, uh, to say the least. Uh, the first status quo agreement about religion that he, that he the Mapai, the Histadrut, agreed upon was with the Mizrahi, not with the Agudas Israel. It came much later. Um, it ha- took place in 1935, way before the state was founded. This was going to enable the Mizrahi to join the Histadrut, the Labor Zionist Socialist Workers' Union, which also provided health insurance, and everyone had a strong incentive to join it. And um, so, so he re- reached, his, the first time he re- reached any agreement with a religious group was with the Mizrahi Religious Zionist Party in pre-state uh, Palestine, a mandatory Palestine. So already then he recognized the necessity, uh, the strategic necessity of of, um, of having to compromise with uh, religious groups. And the um, second status quo agreement was with the Agudas Yisrael in 1947, on the eve of, of the founding of the state. It was September 1947, before... November, right? The big, uh, big, uh, big important uh, emphasis. November was when the UN voted on the partition plan. Um, it was a real politique, uh, strategic move, as he understood that world Jewry, who was still somewhat traditional, would support a Jewish state if it had a, a, a religious aura to it, some sort of, a, maybe even messianic, but at least a religious aura to it. So he decides to, you know, he initiates a, a, this letter. He writes a letter to the Agudas Yisrael party. And he said he's, he's not creating a religious state. 
Um, he's you know they want to make freedom of religion to all religions, but there are certain compromises and 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 the re- recognition of Jewish identity in the state. Um, some even not necessarily compromises um, that that Shabbos would be the official day of rest. That any 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 um, any any state associated kitchen that would be access to kosher food, and there would be a certain amount of autonomy for um, marriage and uh, death and uh, marriage and divorce and death and those type of uh, affairs that would be uh, run by a certain religious autonomy, and that they would also have be autonomy in the sphere of education. Um, with the education clause would ultimately become bone of contentions. In the early 1950s, he abolished the fourth stream of religious state education. This led to the founding of Chinuch Atzmoy, which is a fascinating story, and uh, independent and also at the same time partially funded religious education. So this this uh, autonomy in Jewish education became later a, a point of uh, of contention. And we come along to the founding of the State of Israel, and then there's, it's right at the beginning, there's an issue of the Jewish character of what's going to be the State of Israel. And the question is, in the Declaration of Independence, which is primarily authored by Ben-Gurion himself and others, there was others who contributed to, contributed to it as well, was, will we have God's name in it? And eventually, God's name was not in it, right? So, so you have a lot of, um, you know, Christian and or non-Jewish uh, um, constitutions that have God's name, but the Jewish state does not, um, and it's, it makes a vague reference to the Rock of Israel. Um, but this was a, a major issue. Um, the original draft used the phrase, placing our trust in the Almighty. Um, and, and the two rabbi, Mizrahi rabbis who were part of the the original that the vote and the committee who who's involved in the Declaration of Independence, Rabbi Shapiro, Rabbi, not Rabbi, I'm not getting involved, um, and Rabbi Hudeleib Fishman Maimon, um, they said we definitely should include Hashem's name in it. God's name has to be included in the Declaration of Independence of the Jewish State. How could how could uh, how could uh, you know uh, how could how could we not? Um, and uh, members of the very secularist leftist Mapam, which is essentially the Jewish Communist Party, opposed it, and other um, 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 secular elements opposed it as well. And Ben-Gurion's kind of in the middle. And um, so they used the phrase, Rock of Israel, which could be either interpreted as referring to Tzur Yisrael, as referring to God, or it could be referring to the land of Israel, which is open to interpretation, so each one could interpret it that way. And Ben-Gurion ended off and he said, Each of us in his own way believes in the Rock of Israel as he conceives it. I should like to make one request. Don't let me put this phrase to a vote. So again, he's a, he's a strategic leader and he's a unifier and trying to get a consensus. And he knows, uh, he's, and he's smart at doing it um, without uh, without uh, really uh, getting involved one way or ne- one way or the other, um, leaving it leaving it vague. So there is there is that element uh, of it as well. Um, and then at this time, of course, once the state is founded and the the status quo now has to be extended to allow a military deferment for yeshiva students, which he agrees to. Again, he comes to. I don't remember if it was a written agreement or an oral agreement. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I should have checked that up. Um, but it was approximately 400 deferments. And he figured 400 deferments 
And uh, and I guess the what his thinking was is that these diaspora Jews are going to disappear eventually. Um, so it'll be 400 today, it'll be 200 tomorrow, and it'll be zero in a few years. Um, uh, who knows what he, if he would have originally given the deferment had he known that uh, it would have uh, grown exponentially uh, into a strong and viable uh, community with the demographic, uh, strong demographic numbers and, and growing. Um, but uh, but the original deferment was for approximately 400 students. And, and by the way, is another, again, as a tangent, it's an incredible statistic because, you know, we think of Israel as a center of Torah study and so many yeshivas and there was a grand whopping total of 400 deferments given during the uh, War of Independence. Um, moving along, he, again, his Jewish identity and his seeing the Jewish state, so he was giving a speech to secular Yiddishists, uh, Bundis, Arbeitering, I'm not sure what it was, a working circle in New York in the 1950s. And he gave the speech in Yiddish, despite him being such a Hebraist, and that there's a recording of that speech, which I heard a, few, a, couple, a while ago, I don't remember how long ago. And in there he says, I'm a Jew. Ich bin Aid, far bin ich a Israeli. I'm a Jew before I'm an Israeli. And my identity as a Jew is, is, uh, is my primary identity, and only after that am I a, a citizen of the state of Israel. So that's, uh, that's how he saw himself. What's perhaps most famous in the context of, of uh, Ben Gurion and his relationship uh, with the religious Jewish community is his famous visit to the Chazoyin Ish's house, Rabbi Ramishai Karelitz, the leading rabbi of the religious community in the early years of the state. And on October 20th, 1952, a historic moment, Ben Gurion comes to the Chazoyin Ish's house in Ben Abrak and visits the venerable sage. And it was Ben Gurion's initiative. He understood from the uh, uh, the Knesset members, uh, or the ultra orthodox, the Haredi Knesset members, that their their rabbinic leader, who they listened to, um, was the was the Chazonish. So he said, "I have to meet him. I have to want to discuss with him." It was it was, it was a lot of swirling around about the draft law that was to draft girls into the army, and the it was a strong opposition from the religious sector. Um, to serve national service or to serve in the army, uh, so so it was in that context that he went to visit him. Even though they presume, supposedly, did not even discuss that. There's all kinds of myths about their conversation. Um, you know, it's all, all kinds of stuff, and it's as if there was. You would have think from reading books today, you would think there was hundreds of people in the room and recorders and video cameras uh, getting their whole conversation um, because there's there's just. Uh, so many, so much that there is about this conversation, and and there's actually different versions about it. Uh, most of it is completely made up um, because uh, the reality is is that um, the two of them agreed not to speak about it. The Chazanish did not speak about what the content of the conversation was. The Ben Gurion rarely did. He did once or twice. He mentioned made it, mentioned it in passing in his own diary. The one who mentioned, spoke about it a little bit, exposed a little bit, was the only other person in the room, and that was Ben-Gurion's private secretary, Yitzhak Navon, who, uh, who uh, gave a little bit of information about what the meeting was. But that didn't stop anyone from, um, from telling details and direct quotes and quotation marks and dialogue about exactly what the meeting was and who said what and when. So it's, a, it's quite an interesting read and... and, and and how myth can be portrayed as reality, but uh, that'll leave for another time. 
but because I want to focus on the on the on the on the real reality of the visit itself. It's a, it's a historic. Uh, I mean, it's the fact that the prime minister of a state went to visit the Chazanish and 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 went to his home and initiated a visit like that, and the two of them sat together with an exchange of ideas about how religious how the religious and secular communities can co- coexist in the modern state of Israel at this time. And he says, Ben Gurion says, when the Jews come from all other countries and they come now into here, and how can we coexist together um, in the in the in, in this context, and you know, the security threats and all that, and the conversation seems to have steered from anything practical about the girls' draft or anything else, uh, but the but the the fact of the meeting was widely reported in the papers at the time as it was a real curiosity. There's lots of political criticism across the spectrum. Uh, from both the right and the left, against Ben Gurion for having conducted the meeting and for having gone to visit the Chazanish, um, he wrote in his diary about how pleasant the Chazanish was as a person and how impressed he was, which shouldn't surprise anyone. Uh, Yitzhak Navon, like I said, was the only eyewitness to the meeting, and he was the one who actually said uh, what probably the most famous thing that was said at the meeting about the parable of the empty and full wagons, about how when Ben Gurion posed the question to the Chazanish about how coexistence, peaceful coexistence between religious and irreligious, religious and secular Jews in the state of Israel can can take place. And the Chazanish uh, cited a parable about uh, how a full wagon of goods can get precedence on the on the road uh, to an empty wagon. And there's been many, many interpretations of what that parable is to mean. So the literature is out there and uh, the listeners are welcome to go explore and decide for themselves which is the most accurate version, because I don't know. Um, in 1958, the issue of Jewish identity in the state of Israel became an issue. Um, who, what defines a Jew? Mihu Yehudi. Who's a Jew? And he posed, Ben-Gurion initiates a new project. He poses the question, Mihu Yehudi, to what he termed the Chachme Yisrael, the wise men, or wise people of Israel. I think they're mostly men or all men at the time. I don't know, I don't know the identities of all of them. Um, but but uh, so he posed it to rabbis, academics, philosophers, writers, to 51 people of whom 45 responded and 37 gave the traditional definition of what a Jew is, so someone who's born to a Jewish mother. And that's what ultimately was written into the law, though, though the law of return, which allows immigration to the state of Israel, extends well beyond that, uh, well beyond that narrow definition. Um, Ben-Gurion described himself as an irreligious person, somewhere between atheism and agnostic, uh, unclear if he was truly an atheist or he did believe in some sort of God, um, and he, 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 or he was an agnostic, or uh, I, I'm not sure if it's so important what exactly it was. He definitely didn't believe in, in, in God in the traditional sense and definitely had no great sympathy for the elements of traditional uh, uh, Judaism, um, even though he would quote Tanakh, which I'll get to in a second. Um, I mean, Yeshayahu Leibowitz, who I discussed in in a different episode a long time ago, the fascinating philosopher and professor who was an Orthodox Jew, he, he said that Ben-Gurion hated Judaism more than any other man he had ever met. So that's uh, Leibowitz, but he was extreme in a lot of things he said, so I'm not sure if, uh, and, uh, you know, but that's an assessment. He was definitely proud of the fact that he had almost never set foot in a synagogue once he had come to Israel. From 1906 to 1973, in Israel, when he visited uh, the diaspora, the Jewish communities in the diaspora, he did. I'll get to that also. 
So he, and he was proud of that. He would speak about it. So you're talking about someone who had a strong antagonism to religion, to establish religion. Strong. He definitely disliked it. He was proud of the fact that he worked on Yom Kippur. He was proud of the fact that he ate pork. Um, and he would say that proudly. In later times, he... He, uh, he, refu- he described himself as a pantheist in the Spinoza sense. Um, he, uh, he, uh, he, he had, he, so in other words, he had this uh, complicated relationship with what he exactly did believe or didn't believe, but he had an antagonism towards religion and religious practice. Um, he once wrote in a letter, Today, more than ever, the religious tend to relegate Judaism to observing dietary laws and, preser- and preserving the Sabbath. This is considered religious reform. I prefer the lovely Psalms of Israel. The Shulchan Aruch is a product of our nation's life in exile and was produced in the exile in conditions of exile. Um, and then he goes on to, uh, to the, you need compromise and the nation's intellectuals should come up with better ways. He had, a, he had a very strong disregard for anything produced after the Tanakh. Um, he, he, he loved the Tanakh, but he didn't like the Gemara, the Shas, the Shulchan Aruch. In other words, he had a, a disregard for Tarsha Baal Peh, the oral law. Um, but, but before I get to, before later, I want to, I want to go back to what he said about being in a, in a shul. And he had never gone to shul, to shul. He said, once I went in a shul in Israel, when independence was declared at the request of Rameer Barilan of the Mizrahi, um, so, so he went in then at that time. He did go on once or twice. Other time, I think when his grandson had a bar mitzvah or something, he did go on one or, one or two other occasions. He did step foot into a synagogue Oive, uh, when he was in Israel. But when he was abroad, when he was uh, overseas, he enjoyed attending synagogue on Shabbos. Uh, he, he, he said that uh, in the exile, the synagogue is a natural meeting place for Jews. It's like a community center. It's a place where Jews get together. And therefore, he saw it in a much more positive uh, uh, light. Um, on the other hand, he did not believe in the separation of religion and state because he believed that there's a common destiny of the Jewish people, and hence their religion and the state of Israel. And he had this love of Tanakh uh, and knowledge. and knowledge of Tanakh. He liked to use it as a source for many things, also Jewish history. He emphasized Tanakh and the kingdom of Judea throughout the Second Temple period and the Bar Kokhba revolt. And then it's continuation with the Zionist movement. Anything in between, and the exile is a mistake. Exile is all that. It's all basically wrong. In that context, he had a negative view of the Oral Torah, the Gemara, the Shulchan Aruch, and all that is part of the legacy of the diaspora. And his use of Tanakh and his degrading of the other aspects of the Torah caused great anger among the religious community, and uh, understandably so. And he was conscious of that, and he would consciously polemicize with them on these issues. So needless to say, that didn't endear him to them that much, and this caused a lot of what his controversial legacy, especially among religious Jews, this is someone who was very antagonistic, who was very degrading, of uh, of the of of the of not just of the exile but of all the Torah and that was produced and the halachic norms and all that and uh, and uh, therefore it's um it's uh, it was a, a very very complicated legacy as far as the Jewish religion and the Jewish religious community is concerned and I want to end off at this point with um, his view on Zionism itself which is which is kind of related to this topic and it's such an important. Uh, Topic and misconception that I find almost everyone uh, has. Uh, um, so, and I myself only um, came to clarity in it uh, re- rather recently. So, I'll share a little bit. But his vision of Zionism, he Ben Gurion saw the creation of the Jewish state 
and an ingathering of the exiles as the goals of Zionism. Two goals, twin goals of Zionism. Zionism's goal is to create a Jewish state in the land, the historic land of Israel, and the ingathering of exiles, in other words, that the Jewish people should return to the land of Israel. Once that those two things took place in 1948, he declared, and he believed this as, as, as this to be so, now I'm an Israeli, not a Zionist. Zionism has achieved its goals. Now, anyone who hasn't done the second, meaning that they had not done, have not done the ingathering of exiles, they still are residing outside the Jewish state of Israel, in his view, they still have Zionism because they still have that goal. They still have the goal of Zionism. But anyone inside, once there's the reality of the Jewish state and one resides inside, that not Zionism. It's Israeli citizens of the sovereign state of Israel. This is a very, very important to elaborate upon, and I probably will get back to it because it's a, a big point to emphasize. This is a huge misunderstanding of Zionism and this... Uh, visionary and compelling clarification is even more relevant today than when it was said as far as overall Israeli identity and the place of minorities or other communities in Israeli society today who don't necessarily subscribe to Zionist ideals but are living in a reality that they are Israeli citizens of the sovereign state of Israel um, and therefore they are Israeli um, but not Zionist, and that the, the, those those two, and, and therefore Zionism as an ideal, as a vision, doesn't have to necessarily exist at all in the, within the state once those goals have been achieved. It's a state, and there are citizens of that state, and that state happens to be Israel. Uh, that's an important uh, distinction. Whereas outside of Israel, Zionism can still exist as an ideal if one chooses to do so. Uh, you know, today it's very common. The Tzioinim and, and the, the Tzioinish Medina and all that, in Ben-Gurion's view, it doesn't exist. Um, and, and, uh, and, and 75 years later, it's understandable why it doesn't exist, because, uh, you know, it, it's just a reality. It's, you know, it's Israeli, it's citizenship of a state. And I'll bring a case in point, um, to, on, to, as a point of view. In, in, in 1947, Abba Hillel Silver, who was a you know, famous uh, uh, rabbi, reform rabbi in the United States uh, in the first half of the 20th century, he represented the World Zionist Organization by the UN in 1947. He's an American citizen, but he's one of the leaders of the World Zionist Organization. So he could represent the interests of the World Zionist Organization in front of the UN. But after 1948, he's a foreigner. He's not a citizen of the state of Israel. And only an official diplomat of the Israeli government can represent Israel's interests in the United Nations. And Abihel Silver and people like him become irrelevant. And it's, it's a representative of the Israeli government, not the World Zionist Organization. Even the great Nachum Goldman, founder of the World Jewish Congress, head of the World Zionist Organization, had no power in the state of Israel and couldn't represent its interests. And he came into conflict with Ben-Gurion as a result because he felt that the diaspora should have a, what to say about the state of Israel. And Ben-Gurion said, go jump in a lake, basically, because Israel is now a sovereign state. The World Zionist Organization can serve a role outside of the state of Israel. And now there's official foreign policy, there's official government things, and, and what the World Zionist Organization uh, doesn't really have a bearing on, uh, on what goes on here uh, as an independent state. So that's, that's a, an important clarification about his view of Zionism in general, which is somewhat related, not directly, but is somewhat related to his views of it as a Jewish state. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudiGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, speeches, lectures,
and sponsorships. And uh, don't forget to go out and vote in the New York City primary elections on June 22nd. Teach Coalition reminds us of that, and I'll post the links in the description. And you could subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean uh, or at your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.